So, Jay, all the heroes are going to die? We all do eventually, Miles. Uh, Yeah, but fighting Onslaught, that feels like an awfully depressing way to go. It's definitely not on anyone's wish list. But no, they don't all die. First of all, the mutants are all fine. And Spider-Man, too, since he wasn't there. But the Avengers... Oh, they don't actually die, either. Then what happens to them when they disappear into Onslaught? Franklin Richards builds them a new universe. Okay, that sounds about right, but but the Avengers definitely exist in Earth-616 these days, so what happened? Okay, so the Celestials... Robot space gods, right? Right. The Celestials decided that the pocket dimension that's counter-Earth was too dangerous to exist, so they uh, told Franklin that either it or 616 needed to go and made him pick which one. And he chose to blow up the one with the Fantastic Four with his parents on it? Well, you know, they and the rest of the heroes escaped back to 616, but also the Celestials had a change of heart. Oh, so Counter-Earth was okay after all. God, no. It was thrown into chaos by the presence of the Dreaming Celestial, which was trapped there and trying to escape. Wait, is the Dreaming Celestial the same one that was in a park in San Francisco in the aughts? Yep. Although by that point it had been through a bunch of other stuff, judging humanity, saving Earth from an alien invasion, getting lobotomized by the high evolutionary. Yikes. And then, of course, it ended up getting hacked by Mr. Sinister, who used its body to fight the X-Men. As one does. And its head to transform a sizable chunk of San Francisco into clones of himself. What?! Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 356 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And Jay, we are finally here. Two and a half months later, we are at the end of Onslaught. 2021. (laughs) <laughs> that too, that too. Uh, I don't know, we have a little bit of December left. I guess it'll be very close to the end of the year when this goes live. I mean, they've both been kind of interminable. Oh, that's that's true. I mean, we had 2021 Impact 1 and Phase 1 and Impact 2 and Phase 2. Oh god, you're not entirely wrong. Yeah, complete with various bits of 2021 seeming kind of irrelevant and certain parts being pretty amazing and other parts being an example of the worst excesses and ignorances of the era. And just, just really inconsistent and poorly developed villains. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, dear 1996 Marvel, uh, you kind of knew what was coming. Did Destiny tell you this? If so, why didn't she tell us what to do to prevent it? Right? Ha. Well, anyway, we are here, and I am very excited. We have covered so many chapters and so many tie-ins, and we are at the climax. All right, so we're going to we're going to go to those concluding issues shortly, but first let's maybe I guess touch back on who this onslaught is and what he's doing in the Marvel universe. Although if you're not clear on that right now, maybe you should go back and listen to episode 347 through this one. Maybe, because honestly, if you're not clear on that, you're in fairly good company with the writers of the conclusion of the onslaught event. <laughs> well, there is that. But as far as we know, Onslaught is the repressed negative emotions of Professor Charles Xavier combined with the psychic hate goblin that contains Magneto's evil and given physical form. The X-Men, Avengers, and Fantastic Four teamed up to rescue Professor X from Onslaught's psychic backpack, but Onslaught persisted even without Professor X's physical component and is now somehow even more powerful and fancier. The X-Men also have the real Magneto on their side. Well, a de-aged Magneto who goes by Joseph, who will later be revealed to be a clone, but for now, he's Magneto, but younger and hotter and with better hair. But worse hair than Age of Apocalypse Magneto. Oh yeah, that was the best Magneto hair, no question. Yeah, that hair was not fucking around. 
Now, Onslaught's sinister machinations were assisted by the capture of Franklin Richards, the young mutant reality-shaping son of Mr. Fantastic and the Invisible Woman. And Nate Gray, a teen version of Cable from the mutant-dominated alternate timeline of the Age of Apocalypse. He also captured Nate Gray. Uh, Franklin isn't also the son of Nate Gray. Uh, Right, yes, let's be clear about these things. Good to be precise and all that. With the power of the two mutants from whom he was created, and the two he kidnapped, Onslaught has the power of a god. Which he's so far used to terrorize Manhattan, filling it with an army of giant robotic sentinels and building a huge ebon citadel in the middle of Central Park. Those sentinels fought a bunch of other heroes, but we don't really need to worry about that right now. We did that last episode. So, we're at the conclusion, what is Onslaught's actual plan? Unclear, but probably nothing good. I guess let's dive into the comics on that note. Uh, We've got X-Men number 56, Twilight of the Gods, plotted by Scott Lobdell, dialogued by Mark Wade, penciled by Andy Kubert, inked by Arc Tiber, colored by Joe Rosas, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. And this is actually Mark Wade's last issue on the book. Lobdell's going to write or plot both books, both Uncanny and Adjectiveless, for over a year until Joe Kelly takes over X-Men and Steven Siegel takes over Uncanny X-Men. I am going to miss Wade on these. Um, like, this, this is a rough era for X-Men, but Wade is a lot of fun, and dialogue-wise, he feels like a return to what we had with Niseza, which is someone who really grasps the bombastic, intense purpleness at the heart of X-Men. Very much so. Yeah, it comes off as extreme in the 90s fashion, but also as very emotionally real, and that's kind of what you want out of X-Men. Yeah, so this issue focuses heavily on Joseph. Joseph, as you may recall, is the de-aged, or or believed to be de-aged Magneto at this point, to later be revealed to be a clone, and he is having a really rough day. He's been fighting Sentinels, he's been coping with his own guilt over both Onslaught and a presumptive past that he doesn't really remember. Also, his clothing is really ripped. And so is he, because it's drawn by Qbert. There is so much ripped clothing, so many ripped superhero uniforms in this story. I feel like the tailors of New York City are going to make bank after this. Well, that's assuming that the tailors are the ones who make the superhero costumes. Oh, but they won't. No, you know what? The the tailors of Counter-Earth will make bank. Well, I mean, that's assuming that the costumes go with the various Avengers into Counter-Earth, and I think they get new costumes because their new costumes are different and look kind of stupid. Well, who do you think makes those? Uh, I don't know. Bad tailors? Counter-tailors? There you go. So Joseph is almost taken out by a sentinel, but he is rescued first by Rogue and then by Doctor Doom, who comes in and... and... and he, he dooms so hard... That when Joseph recounts this to Captain America, Captain America's like, yeah, I would have known it was Doom just based on the opening. Such a crude instrument. Still, who but I could construct a gauntlet capable of destroying a sentinel with such uncanny precision? There is more genius in the palm of my glove than in the entire scheme of Onslaught. You're not wrong there, Victor. And that shall mark his downfall. Rise, Magneto. Do not cower. You shame yourself. How dare two such as we succumb to the terror that has so paralyzed others? Fear is for lesser men. I love the idea that the Avengers, like, occasionally just break into Doomspeak because it's funny. Oh man, it's like a dialect. You remember the dialectizer from the early 2000s internet? You could have a Doom dialect. I mean, at least I think you should have. I don't know if there actually was one. Well, no, I, I just sort of imagine he, that he's he's the person you you talk about and you you're like did, you know well he said he he said he was going to come no he didn't he said I shall or or Doom shall well Captain America thinks that's bullshit. I appreciate that your Doom sounds a little like Sean Connery. No. Really? Well, at least your impression of Doom. Your impression of people doing an impression of Doom. Maybe it's Sean Connery doing an impression of Doom. I don't really like Sean Connery. Like he, He's apparently kind of awful. And I know I'm going to get shit for this, but Roger Moore is a better Bond. But Sean Connery was the perfect guy from Zardoz who probably had a name other than guy from Zardoz. 
I'm going to go ahead and say that's not necessarily a selling point. I love Zardoz. Anyway, that's entirely unrelated to this. So Joseph um, debriefs to Captain America, and Cap respects Joseph's current crisis, but basically feels like it's not his business to jump in, and right now Joseph is doing good. That's what's urgent. Focus on that. The next up on Joseph's not exactly nostalgia tour is Professor X. And that is that is a remarkably poignant meeting, because both of them feel really responsible for Onslaught, again with, with varying validity. Joseph asks Xavier how could this have happened? Is he the one responsible? Xavier's been in his head. Is Joseph that bad of a person to have created a little hate goblin like he apparently did? Uh, Joseph doesn't know about the hate goblin part. Only we do. And Wolverine. Xavier replies. You were a man of great strength and great weakness. As a youth, you somehow found the will to triumph over hideous acts of wanton genocide. Man's inhumanity to man did not lay claim to you, but it scarred you nonetheless. You wished to protect mutants like yourself from those who would prey upon them. It was a noble dream. I know it well. In time, however, your methods turned harsh, fierce. The ends began justifying the means— your weakness finally became apparent. You had succumbed to your anger. So that's what happened to me before. Will it happen again? You're seeing the ultimate consequences unfold. You tell me. The last time Xavier and Magneto met after Fatal Attractions, after Xavier ripped the mind and partial hate goblin out of Magneto... That was in Xavier's head. Magneto personified Xavier's own inquisitor, almost. His oldest friend, his oldest confidant, and his oldest challenger, becoming that collection of his own traits. And so it's poignant as hell seeing the two of them together here, for real. And that's just one of many, many reasons I wish the whole Joseph is a clone thing hadn't happened. Now, I'm not saying a de-aged again Magneto is a great plot point, but they're doing some good stuff with it here. I really appreciate that we're getting to see Xavier after his, in some ways, greatest crime, and Magneto, after all of his crimes, having been given a fresh start, getting to interact. That's a fascinating angle on their relationship. I also really appreciate the poignancy of what Joseph represents to Professor Xavier. Because on one hand, he's kind of the vindication of the professor's worst, worst act. He's Magneto restored to compassion and to, to potential. And on the other hand, the cost of that was all of the genuine connection and history they shared. Yeah, very much so. And that's something I wish we got to see more of, just the, the regret and the sorrow of the loss of their history, you know? Yeah, more of more of what their friendship had been and could have been. You sort of get the professor's wistfulness for that in, in the stuff that he says to Joseph about Magneto. But I do wish that had been explored more, and I wish that had been explored more with regards to the professor's own feelings about what he did, because we see a lot of, you know, I have crossed this ultimate line, and, you know, I have I have destroyed Magneto, but very little of I just ate the brain of my best friend. For real, yeah, which is, like, so goddamn tragic, even by itself. Like, even if the guy's not dead, even if the guy's walking around having beautiful, but not as beautiful as the Age of Apocalypse hair, like, still. Yeah, and it's, and which, which isn't to exonerate Xavier at all for what he did, but it's, it's a, it's an ethically complicated act, and, and I feel like has to be presented, and has been presented for the most part, as a really terrible choice, but I wish that that was one of the aspects of the terrible choice that explored further. It would make it more personal, and that's something that we always need more of with Professor X. So X heads off to confront Onslaught, ostensibly on his own, but Gene picks up his intentions um, telepathically in the middle of a briefing and passes them along to the X-Men, who decide that they're going to go and back him up. Back in the amazingly but inaccurately named Eben Citadel, Onslaught is still doing his best to bend Nate Gray to his will, thus far without a ton of success. And one thing that's interesting here is that the narration mentions that the Eben Citadel was created only hours ago. 
But we've been covering Phase 2 for so many goddamn episodes. All of the stuff in Phase and Impact 2 has taken place over a matter of hours. And I get that that's part of the point, that like the Punisher stuff and the Spider-Man stuff and the Iron Man stuff, it's all happening simultaneously. But I don't know. I think that's part of why Phase 2 drags. Very little actually happens in the main story, and we have so many issues happening around it. Like, Onslaught just sits there, has his form drawn inconsistently, and yells at the Moppet and Teen in his head, and that's kind of it during the bulk of the second half of the crossover. Yeah, it's decompressed to the point of asphyxia. Oh, well put. Uh, But, artistically, Hubert's take on Onslaught here... Damn. Onslaught is a little different than we've seen him. He's sort of a weird halfway point between the big Magneto Gundam-looking guy and the weird insect robot-looking guy that he evolved into halfway through the series. Of course, what we saw happen was artists in the various tie-ins forget the second form entirely. And here, he's basically saying, oh, well, Franklin Richards has been resisting me, so that's why I can't keep this form solid. I do appreciate that there is some justification to that continually frustrating inconsistency. There's an even simpler justification, though, that we're going to see next issue, which is that that form doesn't stay consistent because he's evolving into a non-corporeal form. Yeah, yeah, and so it actually changes from page to page to an extent, and It's really cool as it does. It's this sort of uh, massive, jagged beetle with these weird, like, exhaust craters with Kirby Crackle pouring out at various points in the carapace. Like, and a face that's composed of kind of a slightly flexible magneto helmet. It doesn't make a lot of sense visually in a way that makes a lot of sense conceptually. I just realized something. Which is that I would forgive Onslaught a whole bunch more if the event had been drawn by Jack Kirby. Oh shit, Jack Kirby's Onslaught? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it would have a completely different feel, but an awesome one. Yeah. Yeah, Kirby was so good at drawing things that made no sense and making you be like, you know, yeah, okay, that that works. It was like Vincent Price reading any given line in a movie. Well, Kirby's... Genius. I mean, Kirby's genius took a lot of forms, but one of them was his ability to evoke sense of scale and wonder. And and not even so much wonder as awe. And I feel like that's a lot of what's missing from Onslaught. Like, that, that sense of absolute overwhelm. Very much so. Like, I think Hubert captures a bit of it just because he draws Onslaught as so physically massive and intimidating, especially compared to, say, Professor Xavier when they're confronting each other. And that works— But, yeah, there's not that sense of, oh, everyone in the world should be scared of this guy, not just the person that he's towering over. Also, if Kirby drew Onslaught, Onslaught would probably have a truly incredible hat. It's true. And also, it's the 90s. Everyone is gigantic, so you need to have more than size going for you to be taken seriously as a threat. Oh, that's a really good point. Yeah, I mean, Cable himself is about the size of an elephant. Right. Like, I I say that half-joking, but I, I do actually mean it, because... Size is so cartoonishly exaggerated during this era, you know, for effect and for for ambiance, and that's not a bad thing, but it does mean that it becomes a less effective tool at that point for conveying comparative threat. Slight sidebar here. So I saw The Eternals. Have you seen it yet? I've not. Uh, I know the reviews were very unkind. I personally overall liked it a great deal, despite its very clear flaws. Someone described it as potentially becoming the first cult marvel movie eventually and that makes sense but one thing i'll say that it did gloriously was to show scale when you see a celestial it is it just makes your breath catch in your throat just the sense of majesty of almost unimaginable size and power and that was cool to see in a marvel cinematic universe that often has trouble doing that i think for some similar reasons to what you were describing when everything is awesome nothing is awesome Ironically, what I've been watching and enjoying in the MCU is is very much the opposite of that scale-wise, which is Hawkeye. Hawkeye is so goddamn good. I it just I just smile constantly through every episode. It is a delight. So I've been enjoying it a lot. I think it's it's a very good adaptation in a lot of ways. Um, but for me, it, it lives and dies on, and I knew going in that it was going to live and die on because she's one of my favorite characters, uh, Echo. Echo is really cool in it. I mean. 
I don't want to go into any spoilers, but when we first learn about Echo's deal, like I was riveted. Echo is fantastic, and Echo is specifically altered from the comics in adaptation in ways that cut through a lot of the genre-enabled ableism for original representation. I mean, I'm less uh, educated in that topic than you are, but I will say I was very impressed at the handling of a deaf character in like a, an extremely mainstream television show. Well, and, and also the decision to, to make her an amputee because the actress playing her is. Oh, I hadn't realized that. Yeah, that's, that's badass. That's awesome. Yeah, I thought that I thought that was handled very, very well. And in, in general, just that that the representation of of disability in the show is is better than we have seen so far in the MCU, solidly including Daredevil. Well done, Marvel slash Disney. Also, well done on casting Tony Dalton's mustache in that. I, I appreciate that. Yeah, yeah, it definitely deserves its own credit. Anyway, so. What Onslaught really wants from Nate is a blueprint for the Age of Apocalypse, the world ruled by mutants. But when he digs into Nate's memories, what he sees is the general mess Apocalypse made of that world and his ultimate downfall, and and Onslaught is just underwhelmed. Yeah, he's ashamed. He's just uh, so derisive of the mutants that rose up to stop mutants from being in charge. (laughs) <laughs> onslaught with secondhand embarrassment is great <laughs> <laughs> it's like onslaught watching arrested development or something that should be what takes him down <laughs> it's on, onslaught finding out about the age of apocalypse is is akin to us reading the conclusion to onslaught <laughs> <laughs> how very meta but uh not meta like the new facebook thing because fuck that but um okay i have an objection and i have a request about this thing so my objection is that Onslaught should really already know all of this. Freaking Holocaust, one of the lieutenants of Apocalypse, is already Onslaught's minion. Like, you'd think he would have asked, hey, Holocaust, what about that world that you were partially in charge of? Could you tell me a thing about it? Holocaust was the one that actually directly fought the X-Men in one of the two X-Men books. I can no-prize that. Please. Yes, because, of course, one of our goals is to make Onslaught the best crossover we can by making it make sense. Or at least make it make sense as much as we can. But my my argument there is that no one talks to Holocaust when they don't have to. That explanation is simple and perfect. That guy is a total douchebag. Right? Okay, well I feel much better about this. I guess Dark Beast is also Onslaught's minion, but Dark Beast is so easily distractible that I'd imagine he'd just start talking about some random little detail and Onslaught would just sort of slowly back away. Well... And it could be that he's he's decided that he wants to get this directly from the linchpin of that universe. And really, what Nate Gray represents is much more central than what either of those other figures do. Well, and certainly more central to Onslaught's own origin. I mean, Onslaught wouldn't have been able to physically incarnate if X-Man hadn't gotten in a stupid fight with Professor X and pulled his astral form out of the astral plane. He may also have absorbed Xavier's general privileging of telepaths over other mutants. I really appreciate that this thing that makes no sense, we now have, like, three viable explanations for. None of them are that good, but, you know. Better than the comic. Which we are making as good as we can. We're trying. Um, there are... Part of what's frustrating about Onslaught is that there are really good bits. Like, the whole thing isn't a dud, and those good bits make the rest much much more agonizing because because we've 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 got a sense of the heights to which this could have risen and and didn't and also we've got stuff by which a good part of the event looks not so good by comparison like phase 1 is fairly tight and phase 2 is is again is is a decompressed mess and it just, it, it just, it's, it's, it's like watching a beautiful, beautiful tapestry unravel. Yeah. Although I'm very excited to talk about the finale right after this and how that ties into that tapestry, like Michael Bay's Bayo tapestry. I don't know. Anyway, so Xavier in his Fantastic Four constructed hover chair, complete with its own little four logo, which is a nice little detail, does indeed show up to confront Onslaught. And Onslaught 
describes his new goal after learning about the failure of Age of Apocalypse, which is that instead of mutants, just mutants, now no one survives. Fuck them all. Okay, I have another complaint and request very similar to the last one. So it's clear here that Onslaught's previous plan, from what Onslaught and Xavier are discussing, was to kill all of humanity, leaving only mutants. That is what is specifically stated. But wait a minute, all the sentinels that Onslaught controlled, they were specifically not targeting normal humans. I thought Onslaught was going to subjugate all of humanity. I mean, here they're talking about it like he was going to kill all of humanity. Well, you know, maybe he was going to kill them in a sort of existential sense. Oh, okay, he was going to kill their will to live, which does tie in with what we were discussing in the Spider episode, where, you know, the Sentinels were showing that no heroes could stand up to Onslaught, thus destroying humanity's hope, and thus making them juicier for Onslaught to suck up their despair, as is never mentioned in the story, but as was mentioned in the design document. Okay. So that brings us to Onslaught Marvel Universe with great power. This double-sized issue is plotted by Scott Lobdell and Mark Wade, scripted by Mark Wade, penciled by Adam Hubert and Joe Bennett, inked by Dan Green, Art Tiber, Tim Townsend, and Jesse Delperdang, colored by Steve Bucciolato, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. I love the surname Delperdang. It's really fun. I think we've mentioned that before, but uh, Jesse, if you're listening, we think your last name is pretty rad. Good job. As should any issue with this much buildup, this much significance, and this, this much gravitas, this issue opens with some narration by a very important figure. I am the Watcher, chronicler of history. For countless eons, it has been my task to observe the shining blue orb men call the Earth to chronicle the grand ascension of the human race, the splendor of its achievements, and the glory of its heroes. And the reader turns the page to this two-page spread of a fully shattered New York City. My job is done. It's a cheap trick to have the Watcher say, Hey, this issue, it is important. But goddamn if it doesn't work here. Yeah, it's solid. Um, is the Watcher still talking to Apocalypse at this point? I think the Watcher just sort of talks. Apocalypse, I think, might be taking a pee break. I, I don't remember if he's there or not. Yeah, he's gonna be back at the end of the issue, and he was there before this. So, so yeah, he must have just stepped out for, for a minute. I think so. But Xavier and Onslaught are right where we left them, one facing off against the other, just defiance and calm versus arrogance and fury, this very small, human-looking man, and this enormous, freaking bus-sized, toothy, sharp, beetle-face construct. Hubert draws the hell out of all of this. Remember, too, that Xavier doesn't have any powers at this point, so when you describe him as very human-looking, he's he's... Very human in terms of abilities as well. He is. But as Onslaught is about to stomp Xavier into Xavier Mist, some people who are very much not powerless show up with a zack, thwam, choom choom. Rogue grabs Xavier as Cyclops gives orders to the rest of the team and Gene and Stormer to hit high Gambit and Bishop Low, Cable and Logan hard. Ah, the three genders. <laughs> yup. This is why Cyclops is in charge. But that's the thing with this entire issue. This issue is kind of stupid. But that's not a bad thing. This issue, you just turn your brain off and you turn your heart on and you can enjoy the hell out of it. Jay, I genuinely love this issue, despite the fact that most of it makes no goddamn sense at all. I like some of it. There's, the, you know, it, I, I like it as a series of moments. If I try to look at it as, a, it as a story, it falls apart. It's a tone poem. It's an explodey, explodey tone poem. Zach Thwam Shum. Oh yeah, see, you could like be wearing a beret and sunglasses and holding a cigarette. Could be Bernard the poet. You'd never even know. You could be Bernard the poet, and you'd never even know it, because it rhymes. Man. Rhymes are for squares. 
<laughs> well, the Watcher continues narrating genuinely dramatically as the X-Men fight and fall and Xavier watches. And we get, as despair starts to hit, these extreme close-ups of a shield, an orange rocky fist, a hammer, a logo of the number four, a yellow and red metal helmet, and god damn this two-page spread. It is everyone. It is the Avengers and the Fantastic Four helping the X-Men up, looking heroic as hell. And this is where digital coloring really works because we see this orange glow coming from off-panel on the right, which is presumably all the explosions and coruscating energy and stuff from Onslaught. And everyone is just a little bit gradiented from it. And you just see... As impressive as this collection of superheroes, of these noble, powerful men and women are, there is just this formless energy they are all turning toward in their extremely ripped-up costumes, which are going to make a lot of tailors rich. And it's great, and I just love it. Got a lot of heroes here, but no Spider-Man. They said they were going to come. Oh, Maybe they just, like, grabbed a beer and caught up about old times and were good friends and it was really charming. Maybe there were a lot of muggers they had to try and stop on the way. So many freaking muggers in Marvel New York. Even in the midst of a sentinel attack. Especially in the midst of a sentinel attack. Some of them are mugging sentinels. That doesn't seem very hard, somehow. Well, their wallets are really big, so it's kind of hard to carry them away. But... As we see the fight that follows, there's this great grid of all these little tiny panels, both zoomed way in and way out of just these heroes blasting and falling. Like, it feels, for lack of a better word, legendary. Like, it feels historical, even though it's happening in the present. And then, a second fucking sun appears in the sky, because Onslaught has used Franklin Richards' reality-warping powers to make a second goddamn sun that he's throwing at the Earth like he's goddamn Sephiroth. That's very silly. It is very awesome is what it is. I love this so much. And speaking of Franklin, he and Nate Gray are in the Evan Citadel with their hands bound with energy and with these cool spiky like neural looking vines all around them. And Nate's like, oh shit, this is the Age of Apocalypse forming again. But Franklin is an effective moppet, which means he is a font of hope. That's not what Mr. Xavier said. He talked to me, told me to fight Onslaught. I couldn't. Not all alone. But now that you're here, maybe, maybe we can together? Everything in this plot is now based on feelings, and I love it so much. And Cable finds Franklin and Nate. He tracks down their minds to inside the Citadel, but he's not great at telepathy. He's got this whole robovirus thing that he has to use most of his telepathy to keep at bay, so he needs Xavier's help. Xavier, unfortunately, is now powerless. So Cable suggests that he, Cable, might be able to telepathically use Joseph's magnetic powers to nudge Xavier's electrochemical brain barriers and let him use his telepathy. Jay. Jay, this is the best science has ever been in the history of man and mutant kind. That's the thing. This issue is absurd. And I love it for that. I love it so much. This is the kind of thing where everything explodes and everybody in the movie theater stands up and applauds. This is the scene for Pacific Rim where, after getting its ass kicked six ways from Sunday, the main character's mech pops out a giant sword when somebody hits the button labeled sword. I remember an old friend of ours that we used to work with recounting how when he was in the theater watching this scene, he stood up and yelled, fuck every other movie ever. I think you may have enjoyed this issue somewhat more than I did. I'm not saying I didn't enjoy it, but I I, had a lot of trouble getting swept up in it. And, you know, I realize we are both nuanced individuals, but if one were to oversimplify us as co-podcasters, I think perhaps this issue is a little more geared toward the role I tend to take. Now... Onslaught is surrounded by an impenetrable force field, which is a problem, but fortunately the heroes have Victor Von Doom on their side, and Victor Von Doom is, yeah, despite all his flaws, a really skillful strategist. So his idea is that Rogue and Vision should together stun Onslaught so the rest of them can eradicate the force field. 
They're both strong, and Vision can basically phase into Rogue to make her stronger and tone down her power. And then Wolverine and Giant Man and Namor can punch a hole in the field for them to get through. I think Wolverine specifically claws a hole into the field, and then Namor and Giant Man hold it open. Oh, Jesus, like a combination of Lancelot attacking a castle with a sword in Holy Grail and Goatsy. That is that is certainly one way to look at it, yes. But it works because that's how this issue works. And now it is Hulk's turn. He's got a bone to pick with Onslaught after everything that happened in his last two tie-ins. And he asks Phoenix, he asks Gene to turn off the Bruce Banner part of his brain to shut down all control so he can have the strength to fight Onslaught. And she does. She goes into his mind and asks, Banner, Banner, are you there? Hulk replies, Banner is puny. Hulk is the strongest there is. And he punches the living crap out of Onslaught, and him being mad enough at Onslaught to just permanently potentially sacrifice his humanity... I'll buy that. That was actually nicely led up to by the Hulk tie-ins. And everyone prepares to join the fight, but we still have time for character moments. We've got Mr. Fantastic and Invisible Woman holding each other and wondering if everything they have been has been leading to this. And God, they are they are such a good couple to focus on in this this issue. Like this is one of the moments that really got me because they were really the beginning of all of this, of the Age of Heroes. And in some ways, it feels like they're, you know, now at the precipice of its end. Yeah, that's something this issue sells really well. Like, obviously, we know this was an editorially driven decision to kill all the heroes and have them start Heroes Reborn, and it doesn't last very long. This part still works. Quicksilver and the Vision fight together as brothers instead of as enemies and rivals. The Human Torch and Crystal protect each other despite their confusing history. And there is this great fucking page as Captain America looks around him, and in each direction, he sees different allies that he's worked with. He's got Namor and the Human Torch, the new Human Torch, of course, not OG Human Torch, sort of representing the invaders. Hawkeye, the Scarlet Witch, and Quicksilver are representing the Avengers team that he formed early on. Cap's kooky quartet. And Falcon and Red Wing are in another direction, and we just see a little bit of Captain America's head and at least one of his eyes as he looks at each of them. And it just has such a sense of history of, like Reed and Sue were talking about, everything leading up to this. We don't, alas, have Neil Conan at this point, but we do at least have Trish Tilby, albeit a very blonde Trish Tilby for some reason. Yeah, what is this? The Generation X TV pilot whitifying characters? Uh, well, so be it. Uh, and even Willie Lumpkin, the Fantastic Four's mail carrier, is watching... And Onslaught and the Hulk are still wailing on each other. As Onslaught declaims, I despise humans for their prejudice and hypocrisy towards the homo superior race. I loathe mutants for their cowardly attempts to be accepted rather than to rule. Tell me, have I forgotten anyone? Just... Hulk makes him mad. The madder Hulk gets, the stronger Hulk gets. And Hulk is angry. And as the Hulk strikes one last time, the heroes hear what someone mentioned sounds like a nuclear blast at ground zero. And when they get there, they find Banner and the Hulk physically separated and unconscious, and Onslaught's armor shattered and empty. God damn. Alas, that is not the end of Onslaught. He has ascended into his next boss form. He is now a big blue cloud of Kirby Crackle. Cue the dramatic choir last boss music. Thor figures, well, now that Onslaught's formless... Tis a vessel to hold him we need. Then use mine... My flesh and blood, the sinew of the Thunder God, shall surely contain such a wicked storm. And once it does, you must show me no mercy. What? So, uh, yeah, since Onslaught is now a cloud and you can't punch a cloud, Thor is going to fly into the cloud and thus 
absorb it or may- maybe he's going to drink it. There was that time he drank most of the ocean and that's why we have tides. And then the Avengers and Fantastic Four and X-Men can zap him to death and that'll kill the cloud. You can totally punch a cloud. Well, uh, Thor doesn't know that apparently. Okay, listeners. He's the god of weather. How does he not know that you can punch a cloud? He's not the smartest god. That's his brother's job. But okay, listeners. So here's the thing. Jay and I have tried so hard to make Onslaught make sense. And this is the part where we just can't. Like, this is just... This is just Heroes Reborn saying, hey, uh, we're right toward the end of the story, and I still don't have a way to exist. And the story going, I don't know, maybe fucking, like, Thor eats a cloud, and then more people need to eat the cloud. And that's what happens. Everybody else needs to. This is tearing Thor apart. His sinewy form is not powerful enough to contain all the psychic might of Onslaught. So everyone else just runs into the Onslaught cloud. Um, yeah, Human Torch and Thing, Giant Man and Wasp, you know, complicated exes declare their love as they charge to, and Avengers assemble, and they all rush in. And the X-Men try to go too, but Reed points out, well, Onslaught's essence expanded when Rogue touched him, so mutant energy must make him stronger, so the X-Men can't do this. This is nonsense even by comic book standards, and that's saying something. But I gotta give it to Mark Wade because yes, it is absolutely nonsense. But the little character moments we get, like, especially Giant Man and the Wasp acknowledging their complicated history, but the connection they still have, like, it works. All of these characters get their last moments. They get their last goodbyes before disappearing, and it just works on me. Yeah, but they get their last goodbyes in what's basically the Tingler of event comics. Okay, I know the Tingler, but what? No, just just the, 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 the nonsense rendered, rendered credible by dramatic um, delivery. Oh, uh, very much that. Yes, speaking of Vincent Price, making things make sense. So, yeah, that's the thing. And it works. It absolutely works. And apparently we have exactly enough non-mutant heroes, or in the case of the Scarlet Witch, who's more of an Avengers character, mutant heroes who have enough sorcery to not make Onslaught bigger, to do this. Onslaught is contained. Or he's almost contained. Yeah, everyone else goes in, even Doom, who's dragged in by Iron Man as as he attempts to use a gadget to absorb the ambient energy, and Banner wakes up separate from the Hulk and, and charges on in too, and finally, it's just Reed and Sue, again, the ones who were there first, trusting the X-Men to do what needs to be done. Sue, on your count. She puts out her hand. Four. Reed's covers hers. Two. Because three and one from the usual Fantastic Four countdown have already gone in. Oh, like, we are talking about this, and I'm still getting choked up just thinking about it. From this stupid, stupid comic, this part, everything about Reed and Sue and all they represent is just so masterfully done. Man, the Fantastic Four moments in this issue are all terrific. They absolutely are, yes. Like, it's a very good Fantastic Four comic. It really is. And in they go. They were the first, and now they're the last, and that is just perfect. And the X-Men strike. And as the X-Men destroy Onslaught's form, Xavier and Cable and Joseph manage to pull out Franklin and Nate. And Franklin just reaches out to touch the Invisible Woman's energy form as she fades. Where? Where are they? Mom and Dad and Uncle Ben and Uncle Johnny. Where did they go? And as Xavier comforts him, we see this strange blue sphere, like a child's ball, in the foreground. And Xavier says, So long as you hold them in your heart, they will always be with us. Because Marvel had their out from the Heroes Reborn universe from Counter-Earth even this early. Good call. Always work in a backdoor. For real? Okay, so this climax, as emotionally, genuinely effective as it is, barely makes sense, but the X-Men really makes lemonade from these continuity lemons. Or makes lemons from the event lemonade, because with the rest of the heroes gone... Their apparent death contributes massively to anti-mutant sentiment. Yeah, because Earth, including White Trish Tilby, just basically as far as they know, watched the X-Men, a mutant team, 
kill all of their heroes. This leads directly into another event that's been built up for quite a while, even during and before Onslaught, Operation Zero Tolerance. And as it all ends, the Watcher and Apocalypse are there to be Statler and Waldorf's Apocalypse comments. Touching. A tale of the fittest surviving. My favorite kind. You were correct, Watcher. When you told this hour as the end of your age of wonder. For there is another age dawning. An age of apocalypse. Perhaps. Or perhaps a different day is at hand, apocalypse. A day of new possibilities. Of heroes rediscovered and heroes reborn. And that is the official end of Onslaught. And the end of much of the Marvel Universe, never to return. Yeah, at least not for, you know, 13 issues. But I do really want to talk about what this all means, what worked, what didn't, how well it holds together, what we think about it. But thankfully... We have an epilogue to talk about next episode. For now, though, you've got questions. An anonymous listener asks on Tumblr, Do Beast, or Dark Beast, interact with the non-mutant scientific community? Does either version of Hank attend conferences or conduct peer review? Has Hank ever applied for, or refereed, foundation grants? Have any graduate students or postdocs ever tried to work with him? So... We've seen that Hank does have at least some connections to the human scientific community. That's the basis, for instance, of his relationship to Kavita Rao. However, as far as we've seen uh, since leaping through the window nude at Harvard, um, he has been working entirely outside of traditional academic and funding models. I remember he did show up as a speaker at Empire State University one time. That was during the newspaper comic strip with Spider-Man and Beast that I collected, and we did an episode on many, many years ago. An anonymous listener asks on Tumblr, How do you think Chamber's voice sounds to the people who can hear it? Is it identical to a regular acoustic voice, or is it different somehow, and what happens when he sings? Is there a 90s canon that would answer this? I bet there is a canonical answer to this, but since I haven't read a ton of Chamber's appearances when his face is repaired and he can speak at various times, I feel like I wouldn't be familiar, because that's probably when that sort of thing would come up by comparison. But as far as my purely theorized answer, I always figured telepathic voices sounded a little off compared to speaking voices, like more echoey or distant, less present and warm. But Chambers got his own speech bubbles. They've been consistent from his first appearance. And they kind of imply their own version of that sound. They're mostly round, but they have these regularly spaced indentations and spikes. And they always have a violet drop shadow. So to me, that color implies a sort of soothing and smooth voice, if maybe a little gravelly, because I can't imagine Jonathan Starsmore not being gravelly. Really? That implies soothing to you? It implies spooky to me. I don't know. It could be both. It could be a soothing ghost. So I sort of assume that you register what he's saying as speech, but couldn't particularly place or describe his voice subsequently. Well, that could work, and certainly the shapes of his speech bubbles, the smooth, jagged, smooth, jagged, and the early Generation X series tendency for him to pause after every few words, that implies kind of an irregular, strained cadence and feel to the whole thing that I think could also kind of add to that not-exactly-a-voice feel. You know what else it implies? What's that? Spoken word poetry. Oh, man! Jonathan Starsmore and Bernard the Poet are going to go on tour. Yeah, they are. So interestingly, when Chamber was in the New Warriors ages later with Jubilee, he actually had equipment that gave him sound-based powers and went by decibel, randomly enough. As far as the singing question, I don't know. I feel like Jono is probably one of those people who just does songs where the vocalist is talking instead of singing at karaoke. Specifically, he just does William S. Burroughs doing R.E.M., Fuck me, kitten, you are wild! Yeah, I can see that. Now, we are a fully listener-supported podcast, and certain levels of support come with on-air acknowledgement from various fictional characters, concepts, and or floating psychic masses. Let's hear from the angry Claremontian narrator. 
Look at you, Eric Humphreys. So enthusiastic, so full of know-how and can-do spirit, armed with a lifetime of facts and ideas, and yet you stand as impotent as Catherine before the inexorable passage of time and the conquest of continuity. Can't take it with you, pal. And the mic now goes to Onslaught. Onslaught is no longer a physical creature who can be bludgeoned into submission. I am thought itself. I am... Oh, all the heroes jumped into me and the X-Men zapped me a lot. Very well. Behold, my final, final form. I have evolved beyond pathetic telepathy into a being of pure ennui. I don't even care about any of you pitiful humans and foolish mutants. What do you think about that? What do you- Bruce Ng turned me inside out, and now I care too much! Then so be it. Behold my actual for real extra final form. No longer do thought or emotion bind my infinite power. For now, I have gone far beyond your limited expectations, and have transformed into an invincible mass of licorice! But not like Black Twizzlers, I'm that weird, salty European kind. I cannot be defeat- Oh, Kyle still is seeing me anyway. You know what? Screw this crossover. I'll see you guys after M-Day. I guess. And with that... Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York, and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter, who also arranged our theme music. You can find more of Matt's work at moon-talk.bandcamp.com. New episodes, some of which will eventually be based on things other than Onslaught, come out most Sundays on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for visual companions to every episode alongside original illustrations by David Wynn. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week, Onslaught might actually, somehow, conclude! Conclude!